So the topic I wanted to um, address tonight, and I'll just briefly explain that I, I do the, we'll do a short talk first, and then we will have uh, an uninterrupted hmm, 50, 55 minutes of um, preliminaries and uh, meditation. Um, and this will give us all a chance to kind of build up to that moment where we bring the Lama um, from the top of our head into our mind and then we can all kind of take it from there and I, I will do my best I, I um, let's see the last time I did this, no two times ago um, I had someone come up to me after the class and say you know this was really great I was really getting into this really nice space and then you then you said something else <laughs> and you know then you spoke again um, so I'm going to try to speak as little as possible during both the uh, preliminaries which most of you know by now and then after you absorb the Lama into your mind I will say absolutely nothing um, you know, hopefully the instructions will be will be clear, and you'll all know what to do. And then you can just have that time to um, to to reach that meditative uh, space that we're all trying to to get to. The topic that I am going to discuss today is a continuation of a, a topic that was uh, discussed last time, because I felt that uh, I I needed to expand on it a bit, and it's one of those topics that comes up repeatedly. So um, I doubt that what I will say now is going to you know, put it to bed. I doubt we'll all be of exactly the same mind, and that's probably a good thing because having, you know, having healthy doubts and kind of thinking about um, various topics and issues that are raised in the course of your Dharma studies and, and reflecting on them and working through them is very important. But these are... So these are my thoughts on this particular topic based on my understanding of the Dharma as taught by my teachers, which include Geshe Michael Roach, and Christy McNally, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Venerable Punsak, Yume Kansar Rinpoche, and Mopsang Tarchin, Serne, excuse me, Serne Kansar Mopsang Tarchin Rinpoche, and others, including Lama Zopa and others, and based on my readings in the field. Um, so this question comes up about how we should view other beings. Um, and the question is this, um, are other beings our projections in any way, shape, or form? Um, and then, of course, because we're dealing with a, um, a system of teaching where we have two truths, the two truths, which is based on and can be directly traced to the Heart Sutra and uh, Arya Nagarjuna's interpretations of the Heart Sutra. Um, basically the two truths state that uh, when you look for anything that's either material, that is either form, or that is mind, and those are the only, well, there's form, there's mind, and then there are things that are um, not really classifiable. Um, that when you look for any of those things that could possibly arise in our experience, that you cannot find them. That looking for something means conceptualizing it, and then when you conceptualize something, when you construct it in your mind, it is never going to be the thing you constructed in your mind. Therefore, things are empty because everything is a construction of our mind and we can't find it. So then, 
However, we continue to have those experiences. We experience other beings. We experience this, this room as being a room. We can, we, I experience all of you as being human beings, as being sentient beings. I experience me as being Warren. Okay? And those are things that um, anyone uh, up to a up to a, um, a Buddha or someone who has achieved uh, Nirvana or someone who's a ninth or tenth Bhumi Bodhisattva are going to experience on a continual basis every moment we 24-7 we experience a sense of self except perhaps in a very deep meditation where we're meditating on, on emptiness which is the point of it, which is to free us from that. Uh, we experience a sense of other, we experience a sense of our environment, other beings, etc. And we experience um, the action, the inter- interrelationship between self and other beings. And that's called the three spheres, right? Subject, me, object, you, and then the interaction. So what I just said would seem to lead to the conclusion that when I look at any of you that I can say well you're just my projection and why can I say that? because my experience of you is based entirely 100% on my construction of whatever I'm perceiving there is no doubt about that Um, so it seems perfectly proper to say you know dude you're just my projection so I want to examine that and you know explain or or try to understand and have us all try to understand how that could possibly be correct or why it is incorrect. So, first of all, having discussed the, the three spheres, we know that ultimately all of the three spheres, self, other, and then the relationship, the action part, are empty. So, if we examine that particular quote, what does it mean to have what does it mean when we say that you are my projection what it means is first of all I'm designating a you which can't possibly exist in the first place I am designating a a my which in that statement if you think about it you're my projection implies the existence of a me which is clearly wrong there is no me and in fact the entire point of, of uh, the uh, Theravada practice, which is part of the eight, was one of the original 18 Hinayana um, uh, philosophies, is, is, to, is to look critically at that me and um, to, to gain a deep understanding of how that exists. And when we do, we see that it, it doesn't. So to say, here, my projection immediately runs afoul of the, the teachings of the historical Buddha of Shakyamuni um, which talk about the gross existence of any kind of me, of any kind of self. There's no self, no soul, etc. So when you examine this, you don't exist in any substantial way. I certainly don't. And then a projection, which is that meeting point it's, it's my taking the shape and form that I'm experiencing and creating a being out of it. That doesn't exist ultimately either. So the, the, ste- the sentence, you are my projection, fails on every one of those points. And therefore, it's completely untrue. 
And I might add, every single statement, you could argue that every single thing that the Buddha, and I'm not being sacrilegious here, but everything that the Buddha said, uh, including form is emptiness, emptiness is form, is untrue. Not because it leads to a result that moves us away from our goal, it moves us towards our goal, but it's untrue simply because it's conceptual. It's untrue because in emptiness, concepts are not perceived as concepts. Concepts are not existent in emptiness. We're perceiving reality directly, and when we perceive a reality directly, there are no elaborations. So, even saying, uh, you know, this you, you, this is empty, or any material thing is empty, all form is empty, all mind is empty. Those are conceptual statements, and they're not true in that sense, because they can also be picked apart, they can be dissected, and in emptiness, emptiness itself is empty. So. Um, so in that sense, the statement is, is false. Is it true in the sense of experience, which is the other truth? Um, in this case, it's also, I think, equally false. And I think this is the really important part of what I want to say. It's equally false because when you think of another being and how it is a construction of your mind, you also have to understand that you are equally a construction of every other being that perceives you as well. So there is no greater dignity to yourself than there is to that other being. And basically what we're doing is we are perceiving shape and form arising. We're hearing vibrations and we're interpreting that as a being. So in that sense, it's entirely correct to say um, you are what arises, or no, what arises in my mind as a projection is, you are what arises in my mind as a projection for me. So for me, for my mind, all I can have of you is a projection. I can never get at the real you. And I might add, I can't ever get at mine. So your mind, I can't even discern that at all. All I can discern are the five heaps, the pumpo napo in, in Tibetan, you know, the five heaps through my ability to perceive sound, to touch things, to smell, to taste, and to see. That's all I can ever get out of you um, are those things. I can never even touch your mind. And so the, whatever is there in terms of mind, I can either say, you don't have any because I can't perceive it, or Whatever mind you have, I don't know. Um, and then when you say that, it's obviously foolish to deny that all beings have experience. Every sentient being has experience and is defined as sentient because the word sentient means feeling. And based on the ability to feel, we can posit uh, an individual. We can posit a being. So in that sense, it's wrong to think that way because um, every single being equally has experience. And every being equally, as His Holiness has said, wants the same things. We all want to move towards phenomena that are pleasant. We all want to move away from phenomena that are unpleasant. A paramecium wants to you know, eat and it moves away from uh, unpleasant stimuli. When you give a paramecium, you know, it's a one-celled organism, noxious stimuli, it'll move away from it. And when you, know, when you give it something that it can taste, it'll, or eat or incorporate into its body, it will move towards that. Um, you know, very simple organisms move towards light. They move away from, from 
various other stimuli. So we all do that. Um, so therefore, the experience of every mind is entirely equal. I exist no more than you do. And thinking that anyone is my projection, the question is, is it useful? It's clearly not correct. Is it useful? And I would say yes. It's extremely useful. It's a really good teaching. It's a really good teaching for, actually, for the emptiness side of things, not the compassionate side, but the emptiness side. And the reason it is is because the reason that we have suffering, the reason that we're all here today is because we're reaching out to an environment that exists in our mind, that's created in our mind. That's not to say there's nothing out there. We don't say that at all. I mean, we have no problem with physical objects. And in, the, in our experience, physical objects function perfectly. All of you function perfectly. Um, that's not a problem. But the problem is that the things that we see cause us to believe that they really exist. We then formulate desires based on those things. Um, desires either to be closer to certain things or to get away from certain things. And that leads to uh, craving those things or a, a, dis, a, violent, a strong dislike for those things, which then leads to grasping at those things or trying to get away from them, which leads to creation of karma, which leads to all the other aspects of the 12 links of dependent origination. So, um, if we... Sorry? Yes, sir. Question. So, how... Can you elaborate maybe upon, like... Um, you were saying that it, was, it would be incorrect to say that somebody was your projection, but would, would it be correct to say that your perception of somebody is a projection? Totally. Okay. Totally. So, that per- perception is a projection... Yes. upon the basis of the mind stream of the other person yeah, that exists. Totally. So that's correct. Totally. Okay. Just no problem with that. And I think that's that's something the thing I really wanted to clear up is that my ability to relate to any of you is based entirely on my constructing all of you in my mind, but you exist every bit as much as I exist. It's absurd to think that I have more existence than any of you. That would be ridiculous. From the point of view of each of you, you're seeing me, you're perceiving me in some way. Even if you're, if you're blind, you're hearing me. Um, you know, you're, you're aware of my existence and I'm aware of your existence and we can't touch each other's existence. We, I can never get at who you are and I can't get at who I am either. So we have there's a complete equality in terms of my ability to I'm projecting me too and I'm projecting you, but your experience and my experience are completely equal. And we don't deny experience. We all agree that there is experience, and it functions perfectly. Therefore, we all agree there is suffering, and that leads to the second point. The first point is that if you see everything as a projection, as something that's created in your mind, and then you realize that you're overvaluing this, you're thinking that that's really out there, that pot of gold is real gold, and it represents real happiness, and then you need to do things to get it, and you might be stabbing some people in the back if it's, if it's a job, for example, that you're looking for, and then you take action based on that, and you harm people, then you're going to suffer in the long run. And if, on the other hand, you understand that the things that you see in the, in the universe and that you process all that information is basically getting processed based on previous actions, previous habit energies, then we won't have the same strong attachment to it. And if we can kind of disengage from that type of attachment and we can also 
continue to examine our mind, continue to come to these classes, continue to meditate, continue to associate with teachers who are far better able to explain this stuff than me, then you know we can get to a then we can get to a point where we no longer have those kinds of desires or cravings. And if we get to that point, then we can have all of the things that we really need to be happy permanently. Um, so it's very good in that sense. But like any other teaching, it is a skillful means to 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 bring about that kind of behavior where we, we don't cling to things. Um, and then, if, if we then move to the other side, our, in our tradition, uh, there are two important things. This is a Mahayana tradition, and the, the entire point of us doing these practices is so that we can benefit all beings, including ourselves. It's not like we want to benefit, we want to do things for everyone else and we want to suffer. But the point is that um, if we can't help other beings along with ourselves, then we are not, probably not good candidates for the Mahayana. And to see everything else as just as just illusion out there, but there's something real here that I need to work with, you know, so I can be blissed out, so I can then perceive whatever I want, so I can see all of you as as tantric angels, and I can have this wonderful paradise realm. If that's our goal, then there's a really nice monastery in uh, Burma that uh, that I can recommend because that's. That is a goal of the, uh, of the uh, Hinayana philosophy. That's exactly their goal. Once you achieve nirvana, once you have this understanding and insight into your own mind, then you can, you know, you can, you can hang out with a bunch of angels anytime you want. You can have all the tantric angels you want once you have solved the fundamental problem of why we keep on going over and over again through this mess called samsara. And once we have eliminated the, um, I think it's 118 aspects of mind which cause us to continue cycling in, in this crappy realm, then the ability to visualize the things that make us happy is unlimited. Um, you know, we can have whatever environment we want. We can have a, a nicer place than the, the greatest form gods. Um, you know, those paradise realms of those form, form gods, okay? Then it's, it's not a problem because we never buy into the illusion. We just enjoy our illusions and that's great. But that's not the goal of Mahayana. And if in fact it were true that we, that by practicing and by, by doing the practices, by doing even the tantric practices, which I can't go into, that, every, that the world just transforms and everyone is blissed out and happy. If that were true, then the moment we became a Buddha and everyone is blissed out and happy, then we'd have nothing to do. And the only reason we become Buddhas, there's only one reason, is to help other beings. We can become Buddhas because we have such fierce compassion that we can't stand any sentient being not being happy, ultimately. And we're going to do everything in our power to help every single sentient being in all of the universes to be happy, even if that's, you know, 20 trillion gazillion sentient beings. Because Buddhas think of things in, in a very... Long, you know, large scope, long term. And um, that's what a Buddha does. That's what a Mahayana, that's what a Bodhisattva does. And that's what the career of a Bodhisattva is all about. And the fact that when we achieve a certain level of understanding of emptiness by, by coursing in emptiness, by, by having a direct experience and then coming back to it over and over and over again. And the fact that we achieve this view where nothing exists substantially, where 
there is no suffering, where there is no nirvana, where there is no goal, where, where there is just emptiness in all things, that does not deter a bodhisattva from their mission. In fact, they find it completely, um, you know, they find it completely normal to, to have this fierce compassion and to work for the benefit of all beings and help them and they, they derive incredible bliss from that even when they have to go into hell realms um, and at the same time they understand that fundamentally in emptiness there is no suffering there is no one to help there is no Buddha ultimately they understand that um, and if that's a mystery to us that's probably a good thing because if we felt we had that all figured out and we can rationalize all of that to ourselves, then you know we probably don't have any, any real mysteries to uncover and we don't need to be here. Um, and the same way, if you feel that the solution to the, our mystery, our, our not understanding reality is, is to have some kind of meme planted in our mind like, oh, okay, that's just, a, that's just my projection. That's how things ultimately are. That's extremely unhelpful. It's extremely unhelpful because there's no concept that's, so, that's a soundbite that reflects the reality of how things are. And as Venerable Punsak taught once, when you do achieve a direct perception of emptiness, that there's a mystery aspect to it. Because the two truths say that all things are ultimately completely empty of any content that can be specified. They are totally empty of that. If you look for any aspect of any phenomenon, mind or anything, internal or external, it can be parsed down to just complete emptiness. That it's, it's like a quicksand that as soon as you try to take the simplest thing, like there is bliss, there is understanding, there is mind, anything, um, it falls apart. That you have to kind of be able to resolve that with the fact that in emptiness, or that emptiness is nothing other than um, the arising of things. There's no difference. So when one does achieve that view of, of direct perception of emptiness and at the same time is completely comfortable with the fact that things arise, that emptiness is the ultimate potential for things to arise, when they're totally com- comfortable with that and can kind of dance with both of those elements and, are, and as he said, and, and can enjoy the mystery because it's a mystery and the solution to a mystery in this case, to so this mystery is just enjoying it. Because if there was a solution that I could speak, that would not be the solution, obviously. That would be an elaboration. Because when one is in that state, there is no elaboration. And those things are not felt in a conceptual way. There's no words that come to one's mind. Oh, that's how it is. Okay, now I understand it. It's simply a, a discernment, a surety, and a change in the quality of one's mind where one never sees the world the same again. One never sees themselves the same, or others the same, or actions the same. So that's what I had to say, and if anyone has any more questions, um, I, I'm happy to answer them. And basically, it, what I'm trying to say is we need to, we need to see every being as equally valid with ourselves. We need to understand that when beings are suffering, when we say beings are suffering, it's not like, well, I'm just not treating people well, and I'm seeing them suffering, but they're really not suffering because the Heart Sutra says there's no suffering. We're experiencing things relatively, we're experiencing everything within that second conventional truth. Within that second conventional truth, I am suffering right now, you are all suffering unless you're, you know, unless you are here to help me. And um, there is suffering in that sense. 
and, we're, and I'm committed to ending it. And as Shanti Davis said, we, end, we, we work to end suffering simply because it's there, simply because it's, we don't want it to be there. We don't want any beings to suffer. Yes, sir. Um, I just wanted you uh, to expand on the fact that if you have direct perception of the emptiness, mm-hmm. and you understand that the relational uh, conception of anyone else's suffering mm-hmm. is basically empty, then what is the need of the Buddha to bring about happiness? The, the reason the Buddha needs to bring about happiness is even despite the fact that you have this understanding and you understand that suffering never could have existed, does not exist, never will exist, the fact is that in the Buddha's mind, in the Buddha's, this being that understands all this, that mind is perfectly capable of also understanding the minds of all other beings, is capable of knowing that there are experiences going on trillions of experiences that are actually arising in beings. When I say actually arising, the Buddha would would not deny that there is the experience of suffering in your mind right now. You're you're concerned about this question and you don't know the answer and it's bothering you a little. That's suffering, okay? That's suffering because you don't understand the ultimate truth about it. So the Buddha would be aware of that. The Buddha would be aware. There's no suffering in the Buddha's mind, but the Buddha would understand and perceive the experience of all beings simultaneously. And some of them are, you know, are, are kids in, in Afghanistan who have been you know, injured by a, a suicide bomber and are lying on a street somewhere and are having you know, the most horrible suffering. And to just say, to just dismiss it, for us to dismiss it, when we can't even perceive anything close to that, is totally absurd. Um, because their suffering is, their mind, their suffering, their perceptions are no less than yours. Absolutely no less. And even after you become a Buddha, you still are aware that this is a, that the potential that is, exists in emptiness is manifest through experience. In other words, the potential arises as form. Emptiness is nothing other than form. Since emptiness is nothing other than form, emptiness itself is nothing other than minds like yours arising and suffering occurring. And since the Buddha is capable of teaching beings how to achieve the same state, that's what they do. They, they work with every single sentient being until every one of them in their Buddha field, in other words, every one of them that they are able to perceive, uh, has no longer has that quality of mind. Um, okay. Well, that went a little longer than I had uh, anticipated. So we will start now. And we're going to do the same meditation that we've been basically doing, which is um, to go through the preliminaries, um, to try to generate strong compassion for those beings that for those for all the experiences of suffering that are occurring in this universe let's put it that way okay whether their beings truly exist or suffering truly exists every single every single experience we have of the universe contains sentient beings we work with them and we know they're experiencing suffering so and we want to end it so after trying to generate real compassion as much as we can, and a determination to end that uh, suffering. Hello. Um, then we will, um, and after doing some exercises which help concentrate our mind, um, of seeing our teacher, making offerings, etc., we'll bring the teacher to the uh, top of our head. And the meditation we're going to do is simply we are going to 
do nothing other than observe what comes to our mind and with the goal with the goal of knowing the conceptual aspect of that mind which is described as being clear and aware or luminous and aware but the two main qualities are an awareness and then a, a kind of luminous clarity um, you know, take your pick of words um, and if we can get to that state which is a non-conceptual state which is free of elaboration then we can work to further examine that state like what, what's that made of? what is that about? but if we can simply get to that state and have any kind of stable meditation in that state we are so far advanced that it's a very you know, in terms of history it's, it's just a flash a very brief moment in time where we will achieve an understanding of emptiness if anyone can get to that state and the advantage of this meditation, as Venerable Ponsak has pointed out, is that that is the meditative object. That is the object that needs to be examined if we are to achieve emptiness directly. So unlike the breath, where you get very familiar with the breath and you can have this kind of non-elaboration with regard to the breath and remain in that, that, with that particular object, then you'd still have to kind of transfer that ability over to mind. But here, this is the object that we will, we will be meditating on when we ultimately see emptiness directly. So there's that great advantage. So, um, so basically, once you do the preliminaries, you're, and the teacher's at the top of your head, first of all, ask the teacher to eliminate any obstacles to doing the meditation. And secondly, ask the teacher for whatever is necessary for you to be able to perceive the true nature of your own mind and visualize light coming from the teacher and streaming down and giving you those those qualities and then once you have those qualities Venerable Ponsak says don't make efforts that's the the real important um, factor in this meditation that if you try um, you'll get further away from it if you relax into that pristine simplicity of, of, of that true nature of mind if you just, it's almost, he, he's, he once said, um, if you can just kind of imagine you're falling asleep, or even try to fall asleep, try to just relax, and just let the, let the previous work you did do its job. You've already generated this, this teacher. The teacher is the embodiment of everything you seek. The teacher is the embodiment of that mind that you are trying to relax into. You've brought the teacher into your heart, your heart, for, for, in, Tibetans, when they say heart, means your mind. So the teacher has merged with your mind. It's one with your mind. And you're just trying to kind of quiet the mind down so that what is there can manifest itself. So you're actually just removing elaboration. So if you can even try to go to sleep, that's probably a good thing. And Venerable Jinpa, when he was here last weekend, said if you actually fall asleep, you know, doing this kind of meditation, it might be a really great thing. So we should all, he said, fall asleep meditating sometime. So... If you fall asleep, that's cool. I'll, I'll wake you up. Okay, so everyone, um, you might want to stretch your legs right now because we're going to be sitting for 45 minutes. That's a long time. Um, and if anyone thinks they might need to use the bathroom or something, it might be a good idea to go right now. Because um, if you feel like you have to do that, it's probably not conducive to doing this meditation well. So... Please feel free to, to do that. And just get really um, comfortable.
Um, and if you need more cushions, I think there are more cushions in there. Um, I just want to say one thing about sitting. Um, I'm an expert in this because I have all kinds of problems sitting, and I finally found you know a solution that worked, and it's right here. And most of the other cushions don't work for me at all. Um, so I found the right angle for me. And you know, if your feet are, if your legs are falling asleep after 25 minutes or so, which is what happened with me with these other cushions, you may want to change the cushion or change the angle of um, your body a little bit, make it a little higher in the back, lower, higher, whatever. Um, so just get really comfortable. And then just kind of forget about the whatever I was just saying. Just kind of let that, let all those concepts that I've just brought to your mind, uh, let them go. Because if you're sitting there thinking about projections, that's not going to help at this point. So just, um, and then bring to mind the fact that what we're doing in, in all seriousness, um, if you think about everything that you do during the day, what we're doing right now is, is probably the most beneficial thing we could be doing. Um, perhaps the most beneficial thing we could be doing in our life. Um, and that it is, it is very important. And that, it, that these moments are potentially very holy moments. Any time you take even the slightest step towards Buddhahood, towards your spiritual goal, whatever it is, even the slightest step forward, especially when it's done with confidence, that's a very significant thing. That's a very big deal. And so if we can resolve also thinking about this meditation that not that, you know, I'm going to reach emptiness today, but if we can kind of all resolve in our mind that I'm going to make an effort, I'm going to take some small step forward, you know, I'm going to breathe a little bit more comfortably today, I'm going to get my body in a, in a slightly better posture today and feel more comfortable sitting. Um, you know, I'm going to relax my, get, relax my mind a bit more. Um, I'm going to work harder to generate uh, some real compassion. I'm going to think about the motivation. If you just just formulate some some goal, some small step forward, something that is eminently realizable, as opposed to you know some huge pipe dream kind of step. <coughs> so having determined what you're going to work on or what you hope to improve, then turn your attention to the, the fuel that helps us move forward, the fuel that helps meditation really take fire, so, uh, which is compassion, which Kamala Shida talked about and, and others. Um, and think about the fact that there are beings that are suffering terribly and that we have no power whatsoever to help most of them. There is a very tiny universe of beings that we're able to help directly right now. Um, 
even if we did nothing 24-7, but, but, you know, help people in every way we could. And that as a, a realized being, even as a, a bodhisattva who hasn't achieved Buddhahood, we have the capacity to help many, many beings. And as a Buddha, we can reach every being. We can know the mind of every being. We can know the needs of every being. And even if it takes you know, three countless eons for a Buddha to even get to one being, eventually they will, because that's what they do. So, and without beating ourselves because we can't help so many beings, we can aspire to have the kind of mind that can do that. And we can care enough about them to realize that if we could actually reach that state, <coughs> we can do incredible things. So, so thinking about that, thinking about why you became involved with the Dharma, why you started meditating, thinking about your immediate goal first for why you came here tonight, maybe just to de-stress, to relax, and thinking about the ultimate goal you're trying to achieve. Try to kind of ramp up that, that sense of wanting to do this to benefit other beings, those you love, those you feel neutral towards, even those who, who've harmed you because they're suffering. Think about the desire to eliminate all suffering in your own mind and in others. And if you can focus your mind on that, then you will notice how that, that feeling of wanting to help beings informs your body and helps to relax it and helps to get it into the right configuration, the right posture to meditate. And just feel imbued with that that sense, that feeling. And just reflect on that for for a few moments. Now quickly check your body. Make sure that your legs are comfortable and stable however you're seated. Uh, whether it's full lotus or half lotus or any other posture, any other seating sitting position. It should be very comfortable and it should not feel like you would have to move and if there's some very slight discomfort that's not bothering you much at this point, it probably will bother you in about 30 minutes or 40 minutes. So you might want to try to correct that. Um, and then turn your attention to your arms and make sure they're not too close to your body or you'll start to sweat a lot and it'll, it'll be a distraction if it's, if it's like close in and touching your body. If it's too far away, you may start to fall backwards a bit, actually. So just see if it's just the right distance. And check your hands, however you want to configure your hands, whatever, it, as long as it's comfortable, stable, and you can keep them there. And then your back, most important thing. It should be straight, but straight within your particular spinal configuration and all of our spines are a little curved and they all curve a little differently 
so not artificially straight. Um, and it should be squarely over the body, along with your, your, the rest of your torso, your head and neck, everything squarely over your body. It should stay there without effort. And shoulders, if they're a little bit tense, you can tighten them up by pushing down on your shoulders and then holding it for a few seconds and letting it go. Um, and then turning your attention to your facial muscles, um, try to make sure they're relaxed. If everything, if something feels tight, you can, again, tense it up a bit and then just let it go. Many people have very tight jaws from a full day of work, dealing with co-workers and bosses. And you can tighten that up and then just kind of let it go. Your teeth should be in their natural, its natural position, which is just above the your tongue, I'm sorry, natural position just above the top row of uh, teeth resting comfortably on the upper palate. And your eyes can be whatever position is conducive for you. Uh, for some, closing the eyes is best because they're easily distracted. For others, having them half open is best. And if you have them partially open, just cast your gaze downward just slightly and try to just not focus on anything. Just let the focus go. Um, for a very few, you may want to have your eyes fully open, in which case it should be, um, the gaze should be in the same direction and you should not focus on anything. Now, check your body one more time before we f- move on. Make sure that you're going to be able, that you feel you can sit for the duration of this meditation with ease, with comfort, that your body is stable, that you won't feel compelled to move it. If any time during the rest of the meditation you start to experience some pain that becomes too intense and is disturbing the meditation, then the best thing to do is focus on that particular part of the body make a deliberate intention to, to move it, and then slowly, but deliberately and confidently, move into a position that is more comfortable, but never just reflexively move something, if you can possibly avoid it. And now, just become aware of, the, of your breathing, and not making any effort to breathe in any particular way, just just an awareness of what's naturally occurring and an awareness of the breath coming in through the tip of your nose and feeling slightly cool and then cycling around inside and coming back out the tip of your nose feeling slightly warmer just note that very slight difference and try to be aware when you're breathing in and then be aware as you're breathing out. If you become distracted, just rejoice that you became aware that you were distracted and gently bring your mind back to your breath.
Now start to focus more on your breath and try to gain a greater, even greater awareness of the breath as it comes in, being aware at each moment that it's moving inward. And then as it cycles back out, being aware and feeling it as it moves slowly out the tip of the nose. And just try to bring your focus just on the breath. That's your only job right now, just be aware of that. starting from the out-breath with the cycle ending at the in-breath. Be aware of 21 cycles of breath. And if you lose track, then just start over with the first cycle. Be aware and be sensitive to any increasing sense of relaxation of either the body, breath, or increasingly of your mind. And allow it to deepen. And then once again, reflect on our, the goal of this meditation, which is to meditate on basic, natural mind. Mind without elaboration, 
just to know our own mind and to relax into that and let it just show itself to us. And then think of our ultimate goal and what we're ultimately trying to become. and how we're going to achieve it and what we need to achieve that goal. We need someone who has achieved such a goal in the past to tell us what we need to do, what we need to stop doing, how to do it, to correct our errors, to protect us, to inspire us. And now start to become aware of the area between your eyebrows, the level of your forehead, one prostration distance in front of you, and feeling it is equally or more important than actually seeing something. So just kind of feel the area between your eyebrows and feel if there's any change, any slight warmth or any other sensation there. And in that space, our teacher appears in front of us in a form entirely made of light, designed to inspire us. Teacher is smiling at us, ready to teach and only awaiting your request to do so. Feel greatly inspired by the teacher and by what is transpiring right now, by the fact that the means for your own liberation are appearing in this form, a form that can actually lead you there, that can teach you what to do to get there so that you can achieve all of your goals. And in your mind, prostrate, show your respect for the teacher in whatever way is appropriate for you. Remembering also that what is appearing in front of you is not separate from your mind, is not an external being coming to help you. It is the holiest and most wonderful thing that your mind is able to perceive. And then understanding what the Buddha achieved what the Buddha taught and the community of beings that teach the Buddha's teachings and reflecting on them and on how these are necessary for us to achieve our goal and that we need all three of them take refuge in each one take refuge in a being that arose 
who conquered all suffering, whose mind turned correct, was able to teach, to protect us, to inspire us, and whose understanding knows no bounds. And in the, the Dharma that this teacher taught, which has the capacity to liberate our minds and all minds from suffering, and of the community which disseminates these teachings to all sentient beings and does so faithfully. Take refuge in the Three Jewels. When you take refuge, see these three aspects as capable solving your problems make it personal the teacher has the ability and has teachings which are capable of solving all of your problems and is therefore a powerful object which is worthy of you to have faith in and then feeling intense gratitude that this being has arisen and again generating as much conviction as you can, even if it's the slightest shred of conviction that the teacher is in fact in front of you and came because you, you called the teacher, you asked for the teacher, you begged the teacher to come. Holding on to that slight shred of conviction, if that's all it is. Make offerings to the teacher, make heartfelt offerings of things the teacher would enjoy, whether they're things that you actually possess, whether there are things that exist in the world, in the universe, the sky, the stars, whether there are things that are entirely fanciful and made up by you, like flowers that form in the sky. And after making these offerings, and that can include your, your practice as well, which is probably the most powerful offering. Then think about why we're here. Unless all of you are trying to teach me something, we're all here because we're still suffering along with other beings. And we're still suffering because we're still seeing things improperly. And think about the negative actions that we've engaged in over the course of the day as well as the past countless eons but let's just focus on today and think of some unskillful act that you may have engaged in today and express honest regret not out of guilt or feeling bad or beating yourself up but um, regret because it holds us back from our goal and we want to keep moving forward and then again taking refuge in in the three jewels in the truth taught by the the teacher in the correctness of the teacher's mind and in those who teach the words originally taught by the Buddha then resolve not to engage in this particular behavior again for a a certain period of time that you know you can keep 
And if it had to be 10 seconds after you come out of the meditation, that's fine because you'll actually keep it and it'll build confidence. And if it's, um, if it's for 10 years, you won't get angry, it's, you won't keep it. And you can't build on that. So something you can definitely build on. And then think of the meditation we're going to do and the rest of the preliminaries as a means to make up for this act, as a means to purify this act, this negative act. Everything we will do from here on in will help purify it. And if we purify these negative seeds, we can eliminate them before they manifest as suffering. And so having already addressed this act and also reflecting on what we've just done during these preliminaries thus far, feel a sense of relief, a sense of joy, and take joy also in every good act you've ever engaged in with regard to every sentient being. In the fact that you're here in your practice, in every good act engaged in by every other sentient being as well, every mother with her child, every teacher particularly, who teaches beings how to relieve suffering permanently. And just anyone who helps others just because they're suffering with no regard for their own personal welfare. Then seeing all beings arrayed to your right and left and in front of you and embracing all of them equally even your enemies, seeing them all with equanimity, feeling the same love for all of them. Then, once again, turn to your teacher, who's still in the same position in front of you. And looking closely at your teacher, you discern that this being is in fact the meeting place for all enlightened beings. And it's capable teaching all, every single being in this universe what they need to know to achieve ultimate happiness and ask, beg the teacher to stay in this realm and to continue to teach until all suffering from all sentient beings is completely eradicated as long as that may take. And see the teacher happily agree to stay and teach. And then taking stock of what you've just accomplished in these preliminaries, in the kind of compassion you've been able to generate, the kind of quiet mind you've been able to generate, the kind of concentration that you are, that is deepening, then dedicate the merit from it, the energy, the positive energy you've created, dedicated towards the meditation we're about to do. And the meditation we're about to do is meditation to understand our mind. Ask the teacher to come and sit just above the crown of our head and see the teacher entirely made of light rise up and turn
turn and face the same direction we are sitting in and to sit just a hair's our fingers width above the crown of our head and see and feel this teacher is shining as brightly as a million suns it's not a blinding type of light but a beautiful white light and see that light permeate everything see it also permeating our own bodies and as it does that see and feel it moving through our flesh and bones and organs and turning it all into light and feel it removing every impurity from that negative act that we engaged in to all types of negative thinking negative emotions misunderstanding of reality just feel it feel the liquid rays of light coming into our body and just washing all that down all the way down through our body and pushing it out through the soles of our feet and just see it as a dark smoky mass and watch it as it descends right into the earth and disappears and now our body is filled with this white light now ask the teacher to help us raise our compassion for other beings which is the fuel we need to achieve our ultimate goal of combining emptiness and wisdom and compassion and then see red light coming from the teacher's heart and entering through the crown of our head and moving down to our throat chakra which is towards the back of our throat just in front of the spine and just feel it filling that area and feel it feel our compassion our connection with all beings increasing all those beings that are around us that we're embracing that we really want to help and understand that we're doing this meditation for them every bit as much as ourselves and then asking teacher for that ultimate understanding of mind of how things truly exist see again from the teacher's heart blue rays of light liquid light descend from the teacher's heart entering the crown of our head and flooding down into our body and all entering our heart chakra area which is in the, the center part of our chest just in front of the, the spine and feel that light enter and with it our understanding our ability to understand the nature of mind increasing and feel and understand that what is now above our head is a messenger bearing a priceless gift and that what we really need right now 
is exactly what that messenger has, which is an ultimate understanding of reality. And the messenger wants nothing more than to give us this message, this gift. And so, see and feel as our own desire to have the teacher deliver this message meets the teacher's own desire to give it to us. And at that moment, the teacher shrinks into a tiny and fiercely brilliant ball of light and moves downward through the crown of our head, through what is now just space, which used to be our body, and moves down into our heart and becomes inseparable from our mind. And then just see and feel that. And then just relax into it.
whatever degree of relaxation you may be experiencing now, know that it is infinitely greater than that of many, many, most, almost all suffering beings and wish that every being that is suffering could feel at least as good as you do now. And then thinking of once again about your ultimate goal, dedicate all of the positive energy, merit that you've achieved during this meditation to it so that you may help each and every one of these beings so they don't have to suffer anymore. And then start to become aware of your breath again. And slowly become aware of your body starting from the top of your head and moving downward till you reach your toes. And then when you become fully aware of your body, you can open your eyes and relax. Well, this time it was a little longer. Good. <laughs> um, I, I hope that you've found this useful. And if anyone has any um, questions, feel, please feel free to ask either now or, or after uh, after we end. And thank you, uh, thank you all for coming. And I just have one one final thing to say, um, just by way of explanation, um, which is that um, uh, a Venerable Punsak had asked me to teach tonight a few days ago, and he asked that I not uh, send out the usual email that he wouldn't wouldn't be here. So, um, so I apologize if some of you didn't expect it to see someone else here, mm-hmm. and not me. But I was following my my teacher's orders basically. Um, so he, he had to be out of town. He was not able to teach, but he asked me to just come in and not not mention it until today. So so that's why. Um, generally, I will send out an email message when Venerable Punsak is not not able to teach. And if anyone is not on the list, um, the email list, and would like to be, please um, just give me your email, and I'll be happy to put you on um, as soon as I get to work on Monday morning. Thank you very much.